So Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18 is our scripture reading, and I'm going to have Tim come up and read it for us. Luke 20, verses 1 through 18. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant. And they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you again for this time. God, we ask that as we open up your word, um, as we uh, finish for a time in the gospel of Luke, God, that you would use this passage um, to conform our hearts and minds to the image of Jesus Christ. God, that you would use your word to shape and form your people. God, that as we read it, we would understand uh, you more clearly. We would understand our own hearts more clearly. God, that we would see your gospel more clearly. Um, and that we would understand um, what it has called us to. Father, we pray this day as we as we usually do, uh, God, that you would bring revival to our community, God, that you would stir the hearts of your people, and that we would grow in our passion to know you, God, to be um, filled with your word and your spirit, God, to... Uh, be a witness um, to your goodness and your grace in Jesus Christ to the community around us. God, that we would um, rest on the authority uh, that you have. Um, God, in the midst of a a secular uh, and perverse culture, 
God, that we would be a, a voice of truth despite um, the circumstances around us. God, that you would um, open the eyes of our community, that they would see Jesus Christ. Um, they would recognize the depths of their own depravity, um, and that they would seek the only hope of salvation they have, uh, and that is in Jesus Christ himself. Father, we ask that you would work these things um, in a power beyond um, anything that we could do on our own. And yet, God, we pray also that you would use us as instruments of that revival and that you would revive our own hearts as well. God, we ask these things in the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we come to a scripture, and we have come to several as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke that deal um, very pointedly, very directly with the issue of authority. And so I think we have talked about multiple times. You are aware of it just from living in our culture and watching the news. And, and the way things are is that we are living in the midst of a crisis of authority. Um, Authority in general is in crisis in probably in our world society, but particularly in uh, our American society. There is a sense that many people express that there is no one left to trust anymore. All the entities, all the institutions that in previous generations and really previous centuries and even millennia that, that we would have turned to um, seem compromised in some way. The government, the academy the church, the media, business, schools, all of them seem to be compromised um, in some way. All of them seem to be, at least at a level, um, it's, it's hard to trust in, in what they are saying, what they are teaching, the direction they are going, the way they are presenting truth. Um, I, I think, and obviously we have talked before and, and talked among ourselves about the problem of conspiracy theories in our current culture. But part of the problem, part of the reason why conspiracy theories are so popular now is because um, when you compare them to the obvious lies of our institutions in some cases, you almost go, well, if we're going to believe some lie, um, what difference does it make which lies um, we believe? I think that's almost the way people people think sometimes. The the conspiracy theories seem to have as much plausibility as the as the blatant lives lies of some of our institutions. Um, we watch them make decisions as they as they pander to to different groups and different interests, irrespective of of truth or irrespective of of goodness. Authority, that is all to say, is always at the heart of everything we do. Authority, the question of authority, as we discussed tonight in our How Should We Then Live study, um, as we come to the Reformation era and we talk about that, the question at the heart of the Reformation is a question of authority. The great says who? That's the question. It is one of the core philosophical and religious questions that we could ask. Says who? You've got a truth claim, says who? What authority are we supposed to trust in? And the question of authority, honestly, never gets solved. Okay? The question of authority is a question that we have to re-ask every generation. And really, every, every nation, every institution, every individual has to re-ask this question in a sense every day of their lives. Okay? You have to wake up every single day and say, says who? 
okay? Whose authority am I going to submit to today? Whose voice gets to tell me what truth is? We probably don't think of it that way. If you know, you probably don't wake up every morning and sort of say, "All right, who am I going to listen to today?" Um, but in a sense, that's part of the reason why it's so um, beneficial to be in the Word immediately in the morning, right? Because what you do is, while as you may not be consciously asking yourself um, the question "says who," you are at least letting the "says who" speak to. All right. And again, I know that some of us have different practices in terms of, of, of our personal discipleship and some of us are morning people and some of us are evening people and everything. And so that's OK. Um, but it is to say that, that there is an importance there to have the truth of God's word speaking into our lives and at least addressing that question each day says who we come to this passage and there is a question of authority. Jesus authority is being questioned. And so we started the passage again, says one day. We know that that one day is within the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly life. But on one of these days, um, as Jesus is teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, it says the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. All right. So these things that he's talking about is almost certainly the cleansing of the temple that Tanner talked about last week. Right. So the fact that Jesus came into the temple upended the whole process of commerce uh, and, and, and buying and selling of sacrifices and all the different things flips over the tables, causes this big ruckus. The Pharisees are asking Jesus specifically about that event, but they're probably, in general, referencing all of his teaching, right? By what authority do you heal on the Sabbath? By what authority do you break with the customs that the Jewish nation has has been living in for generations? By what authority do you eat with sinners um, and, and have table fellowship with them? These are all practices that had fallen into a regular observance among the Jewish people, and yet Jesus is bucking all of them in some way. And so the Pharisees are asking um, what our world asks every single day. What right does Jesus have to tell us what to do? What right does Jesus have to reorient our lives around what he says is right? They call Jesus' authority into question. But then what's cool, and we find these fun stories throughout the scriptures, Jesus turns it on them. Jesus turns the question on them and, in fact, calls their authority into question. And in the process of that, he exposes their character and and, uh, the nature of their authority in general. So, right, so verse 3, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it had come from. So as Jesus poses the question to them, they recognize that there's no easy way out of this question. And there's really only three answers that you can give. But each one of them is... Perhaps maybe they don't realize it at the time, but each one of them reveals something about their character, about their leadership, and about their false authority. Each answer is pointed at an aspect of their leadership, you could say, in a way. So the first thing um, 
that they possibly can say is they can say, well, uh, this baptism that John practiced, it, it came from God. But then they immediately say, but if we say that, Jesus is going to ask us, then why didn't you believe it, right? Why didn't you receive it at the time? Because they didn't. They treated John like he was an outsider, both figuratively and literally, right? John was an outsider. He was outside the community. He was out in the wilderness preaching and teaching these things. People were flocking to him out there. He was literally an outsider. And so they didn't want to share power with him, rejected his message, And so that could be an answer. Now, here's an interesting thing. They could say that. They could say, you know what? It came from God. John's baptism was from God. And do you know what then they could say? They could say, we didn't accept it then, but we should have, right? We were wrong. We should have accepted John as a prophet from God, and we didn't. But that doesn't seem to be even plausible in their minds. And again, it reveals something, I think, about the nature of their authority. So a fallen, sinful understanding of leadership says making mistakes undermines my credibility. If I admit I'm wrong ever, then people will use that to undermine my leadership. So therefore, what's the answer? I must never admit that I'm wrong. I must always double down on everything that I say. We see this obviously all the time with media, with the politics, with interpersonal relationships in a lot of ways too, right? Um, I have been shown I was wrong, but now I can't admit that because I'll risk um, being attacked for it. That adversarial relationship that we seem to have with everybody, right? Everybody is an enemy who is trying to usurp any sort of authority or influence that I have. And I can't let that happen. Um, and that's, that's part of the culture that we have in our country and probably just as humanity that makes a mess of so much of leadership in churches, in politics, in boardrooms, in school boards, in, in all the different levels. Part of the offense of the gospel is admitting we're wrong, right? Part of the offense of the gospel to people is saying, I'm wrong about lots of things. I have been wrong. First, obviously saying I was wrong to God with no excuses, right? No explanations, not trying to justify your view to just simply say, yeah, I was was wrong. I was wrong about that. I I made a decision, and it was a bad decision. Imperfect human leadership requires being able to say, I I was wrong sometimes. Um, I make mistakes. I'm not all-knowing. I'm infallible. Sometimes I just do what I seem seems to be best, and sometimes it's not what is best, okay? You guys may be looking going, Ash, are you prepping us for something? Like, is there, have you done something that you're about to set this up for? No, Um, although I'm sure there are many things for which I could apologize and say, yeah, that wasn't the best um, way to lead. That wasn't the best example to set. That wasn't the best, all kinds of things, right? But here's something to notice. The Pharisees didn't fail because it was an accidental thing. They didn't look at John the Baptist and say, you know what? Um, we think he's not from God, 
but but that was just a mistake we made, right? That's that's probably part of the reason why they don't admit to it. It wasn't a failure of judgment. They did it because they didn't like John, and they were scared that John was going to take their power, right? It, it would be one thing if if we could look at the Pharisees and say, well, they they were against John and even against Jesus for honest motives. They thought he was actually a blasphemer or something like that, and so they were wrong. But but they just chose that they made a mistake, you could say. But that's not really what's going on, and we know that because of the second possible answer. Right. So what's the second possible answer? They can say, no, John's baptism was not from God. John's baptism was from men. But they also know that they can't say that. Why? Well, he tells us in the passage, because if they say that, the people will stone them to death. Now, likely that's hyperbole. Okay. Likely the people are not actually going to stone the Pharisees to death. Okay, he's just indicating that the people are going to be rebellious against that. They're not going to agree with it. They're going to reject the leadership of the Pharisees or whatever. Now, some commentators will actually point to the fact that if a true prophet comes and another prophet rejects that true prophet, then that makes them false prophets. And therefore, as false prophets, the legitimate Old Testament uh, action against those false prophets would be to stone them. Okay, and so it could be that they literally recognize the situation and they are afraid that if it is recognized and admitted that John was a prophet from God, that they will be seen as false prophets and be and be uh, stoned to death. But again, I, I don't think that's probably exactly what they're thinking. I think the main issue is much more obvious. They fear the rejection of the people. That's the problem with their leadership. They are acting pragmatically to maintain their own power instead of acting, acting convictionally to lead the people in truth and righteousness. So we see this over and over again in the New Testament account. Much of the opposition that Jesus faces, much of the opposition that John the Baptist faces, is whether it comes from the Pharisees, the conservatives, or the Sadducees, the liberals, it doesn't matter where it comes from. The reason it comes is because um, they are scared that they are going to lose their power. They are scared that they're going to lose their influence. They are scared that the people are going to walk away from their leadership and follow John or follow Jesus. Now, again, if they were honest in this, if they really thought that John and Jesus were bad guys, not from God, then we might look at them and say, well, you were woefully mistaken about your opinions, but at least it would be an honest mistake. But that's not what's going on here. They are scared and protective of their own power and influence. And so they'll do anything and say anything to prevent John first or Jesus later from stealing their thunder. Now, what's interesting is when we look to the life of John the Baptist, we see the right response to these things. Because literally, there is a story where John is there with all of his followers. And what happens? Jesus shows up. Jesus starts ministering. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is healing. And John's followers start drifting away from John and going to follow Jesus instead. And some of John's followers come to Jesus, I mean, come to John and say, John, what are we going to do? All of your followers are leaving and going to follow Jesus. What are we going to do? And what does John say? He says, I must decrease 
he must increase, right? He's more important than I am. My authority and leadership was, was secondary. The greater leader is here now. And so it is perfectly right that those leaders would go and, and, and go to that, that other lead, that greater leader, right? Obligatory Lord of the Rings reference. I started reading the, the Return of the King and I'm on the chapter right now about the steward of Gondor. And he is this character who is there who for generations, for thousands of years, has been waiting on the return of the king. But in the meantime, he has been the leader, right? But there's a little bit of tension there because he's sort of gotten used to being the leader and his ancestors have gotten used to being the leader. And there's a tension to question whether or not if the actual king returned, whether or not they would even want to hand over power at this point. All right. The Pharisees are in a similar place. The Pharisees, the Pharisaic culture arose in the exile period. They were sort of the in-between people between the sacrificial age and the things that were going on there. They were almost like substitute priests in a way. And they had gotten a lot of power in that time. And yet now that power was under threat. And so they are saying, no. We'll reject John and we'll reject Jesus out of pragmatism and out of fear of what's coming. Pragmatism, man, has an incredible pull on our lives to do not what is right, but to do what will work, to do what will get us out of a mess, to do what seems easy and will bring the results we want. Okay, We all know that. We all know it when we do our taxes. Um, we all know it when we are um, working out the little different things of life. We all know that there is a powerful pull to pragmatism. Churches have powerful pulls to compromise the truth for the sake of growth or money or, or all kinds of other issues, okay? Pragmatism is powerful. Fear is an even bigger motivator. Trying to mitigate potential losses, instead of focusing on objective truths that we should live by, okay? That's what we mean when we say these guys are leading out of something other than conviction. They are not standing or acting out of truth or righteousness, but they're acting out of their own fears and pragmatic power plays, right? How do we get those convictions? How do we have and live convictionally? Well, I think it's, through our familiarity and intimacy with the heart and mind of God through his word. All right. Dr. Moeller talks about this idea of saying, man, what we hope is the case is that we come to a point in our lives where we are so saturated, saturated with the word of God that when a incident pops up, right, a, a moral decision has to be made. It's not a moment where we have to sit there and go, all right, I'm going to make my pros and cons list and do all that stuff that immediately we live out of the convictions that we know from the word of God because they are so ingrained into the way we think that we just live out of them. But as we see oftentimes about the Pharisees, and Jesus accuses them at several points, they don't seem to know much about the kingdom of God, okay? They don't understand his word, although they may have it memorized um, in, in from front to back. So they can't go with the first two options, so they go with the third option, and that is, doing what politicians have done since probably the beginning of time. You can't be held responsible for a comment if you don't make that comment. 
And so what do they do? They say, we don't know. You gave us two options from God, from man. And the answer is, we don't know. If we're honest, we respond like the Pharisees do a whole lot. Probably many times during any given week, you just keep your mouth shut, right? All kinds of opportunities to say something arise and you go, man, I'm just not interested in getting into this. And I can't be attacked for saying nothing, so I'll just keep my mouth shut. I don't want to give the world enough fuel to burn me, and I don't want to give them enough rope to hang me, so I'll just keep my mouth shut. But here's the deal. In those cases sometimes, and again, sometimes maybe there's wisdom in that, but oftentimes we may be exhibiting the same cowardness, the same convictionless kind of calculations that we see in this story we see in, in, in the media and other places every single day. They think the safe answer is to say nothing. But again, Jesus has trapped them. Because the refusal to answer, particularly in this situation, is a devastating blow to them, if you notice. Because it shows that they are incapable of recognizing true spiritual authority. They have demonstrated that they don't know. When somebody like John shows up, is he from God or not from God? The answer is, is man, we don't know. And that is a more damning answer than either he's from God or from man would have ever been. Is John a prophet? Man, we don't know. But if you're incapable of answering concerning John's spiritual legitimacy, then what right or authority do you have to comment on Jesus' spiritual legitimacy? Again, they demonstrated that when it comes to knowing whether something is from God or not, the Pharisees aren't very helpful. They're not the guys that you would go to. As those who say they have authority, Jesus demonstrates that their authority is illegitimate. And so what does he do? How does he respond? It says, Jesus in verse 8, he said to them, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things. All right? Jesus doesn't owe them an answer. Now, here's the thing. Having said what I just said, you might look at it and go, isn't Jesus just doing the same thing they did? Isn't Jesus just not answering the question so that he can't be held accountable for it? You might interpret it that way, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think Jesus is silent, that his silence is a condemnation on their authority. It's the same way that when Jesus was standing before, we'll see in a few weeks, standing before King Herod, and as Herod hurls questions and accusations at him. Jesus is silent and says nothing. It's because he is condemning the false authority of these people. They're hacks, right? Jesus doesn't owe them an answer. They don't have an authority that can come to him and demand an answer because Jesus is the true authority. And the problem is that the people of Israel's unrepentant foolishness their pragmatic idolatry, their fearfulness, their inability to see and recognize true spiritual leadership is not just a problem that the Pharisees have. It's a problem that has been going on since the beginning of the nation, and we all understand since the beginning of mankind. It's been going on from day one, and that's what the parable is about that Jesus shares next in verse 9 where he talks about a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent servants to the tenants 
so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And they sent a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. The parable is an illustration of the history of the nation of Israel. And Israel from day one has rejected the authority of God. The servants who are repeatedly sent represent the prophets whom God has sent over and over again for centuries to call the people to faith and repentance. And yet, over and over, they reject that authority, sometimes attacking those men, sometimes even killing those men. Then 13 tells us, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my own beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. God sends the ultimate authority. He sends his own son, the heir. He literally bears the same authority as the father, the owner, because he is the son. He is the heir. The people are unwilling, though, to receive that authority. Maybe it's because they didn't like the idea of a secondary authority, but I think we all recognize that's not it. What does it say? It says they want to kill the son because they want to own the property, right? They want to be in control of it. They don't want to be under anyone's authority. Their killing of the son is the ultimate act of defiance and rebellion against authority. And then we see what happens when people reject the legitimate authority of God. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants. Again, we talk about it week after week, but it keeps on coming back every single week. Jesus is saying some pretty heavy stuff. When you hear that line about the Old Testament is all about judgment and the New Testament is all about grace and love, it's because you haven't read the New Testament very closely. Okay? There's a ton of grace in the Old Testament. There's a ton of judgment in the Old Testament. There's a ton of grace in the New Testament. And there's a ton of judgment in the New Testament. The consequences for these tenants is it will mean their rejection. Okay, And that is a picture again. It's a parable that represents what? The rejection of the, of the nation of Israel and the inclusion of the Gentiles. The rejection of Jesus by the majority of the Israelites has resulted in the blessing shifting, salvation shifting from the Jewish world to the Gentile world. What does he say? He says the vineyard has been given to others. That's what happens. Now, that's a key passage. And I think it's elaborated on in Romans chapter 11. It's, it's a big discussion about the relationship between the church and Israel and all these things. We could go down a rabbit hole and be lost in it for a long time. But I think Romans 11 is a key way to understanding what he's alluding to in this passage. But I'll leave that to your own reading. But, but to make one point, Romans 11 makes it pretty clear. Our inclusion into the people of God is a function of our faith and submission to Christ. It's not because we're better or smarter or whatever. It's because when we were presented as, as Gentiles with submission to Christ, with his authority, again, not everybody, obviously, but those who have believed have received that. They've submitted to Christ. But if we rejected him, 
the same way the Jews did. If we said, we don't want to live under your authority, Jesus, then it would mean the same for us. The result would be the same for us. Condemnation, destruction, exile. I have a a fear that that's what's going on in our world right now. As we continue to reject Christ, we are exiling ourselves. Our cultures are being exiled. Our governments are being exiled. Um, God is turning away from uh, the nations of of the West, you could say, that historically had been at least nominally Christian and now continue to walk away from it. So you probably are aware that this week that Queen Elizabeth II passed away, right? And so, it's it's man, it's funny to watch the comments that people say about these things. And, you know, some people are are gushing in their condolences and other people are like, you know, uh, we're glad the oppressor of, you know, Western colonial imperialism is dead, you know, or whatever. And so it's, it's, it's people are, the internet is a fun place. Um, but here's something, I mean, obviously a historic reign. We, we talk about this a lot with World War II veterans. The fact that, so if you were a 18 year old in like 1945 at the end of the war, you're somewhere around 95 right now. So there are very few people left in the world who are connected to those events and that generation and all the things that happened. And to have a woman who reigned for 70 years and was such a, I mean, it's an, it's an incredible, there's not many characters like that left in the world, right? There's not many people who have had that sort of connection and influence. And so, you know, it's a fascinating thing. I'm sort of an Anglophile. Like I love English history and English stuff. And so it's, it's really interesting, but one of the interesting things about us living in, um, a culture that has rejected monarchy is we have this goofy relationship with ultimate authority in some ways, right? We don't get the idea of someone who can come in and say, by virtue of my being, I have authority um, and I get to tell you what to do and how to live. A monarch If you're coming from a democratic or, or sort of anti-monarchical worldview, right, a monarch should have to answer to the people, right? They should have to live according to our will. They exist as a function of our allowing them to exist. He or she can't uh, be expected to just be followed based on their own authority. What does that say about my own autonomy? What does that say about my self-determination? So obviously we can argue the legitimacy of human kings and queens, but the concept, I think, the fact that we don't have a king or queen hurts us a little bit in our perception. Because there is unquestionably a divine king who bears all authority, whose will cannot be thwarted, who, when he makes a declaration that that is absolute, And there is no questioning of it. There is no consideration for your feelings or your thoughts or your interests. There is only his authority. Now, the amazing thing that we find in the scriptures is that that authority is also good and gracious and loving. That he serves his people and cares for them and ministers to them in any number of ways. And yet that goodness and kindness doesn't negate his authority. It doesn't negate his absolute will. 
And here's the reality. Every single person in the universe will submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. One day. Every single one of us will. What does he say in verse 18? Again, man, one of these passages that just has a weight to it. He says, everyone who falls on that stone, this stone that he's talking about is himself, that has become the cornerstone, that has been rejected by the people. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He's speaking to his own ultimate authority. Again, the story of our world is about authorities that are in conflict, different groups vying for power, but only contingent authorities, only secondary authorities have to worry about acquiring power and losing power or whatever. They may dictate about things. They may pontificate about truth and different things. But at the end of the day, there's only one authority and everyone will be held to account to that one authority. The Pharisees think that killing Jesus, just like the guys in the parable, they think that killing Jesus will end his influence and secure their own authority, their own position. But the reality is, is what? Not even death will infringe on Jesus' authority. It will only demonstrate his authority to a greater extent. And so whether you accept or reject him is irrelevant to his rule. People on earth need to be followed to be leaders in a sense, right? Um, there's, a, there's a line about how do you know who the leader is? Well, you look behind him and see who's following you, right? That's how you find out who a leader is. Not ultimate authority. Jesus is ultimate authority regardless of who follows him. If nobody followed him, he would be no less king. And if everybody follows him, he will be no more king. Because his authority is ultimate. The reality is this. Jesus is the rock that all ships crash on. Okay? If you are sailing your own little boat of self-will and self-determination, I guarantee when it gets to Jesus, it's going to bust to pieces. And you can either do that now in this lifetime, or you can do that on the day of judgment. You can either bend the knee now and submit to a good and gracious God who loves you, has saved you, and wants good and blessing in your life. Or you can say, no, I will be a rebel against his will, and I will be brought to my knees at the day of judgment. That's the only two options that any of us have. So the deal is, is why not just submit now? Why not willfully surrender to Jesus? Submit to him in every aspect of your life. But Ash, I'm afraid that if I do X, something will happen. I'm afraid that if I don't do Y, something will happen. You're thinking out of fear. You're thinking out of pragmatism. You're thinking out of what makes sense for your daily life. You're wrong. There is one authority. Follow that one authority. Rest your life in the authority of Jesus Christ. Acknowledge his authority before others. That's a scary thing to do, right? It is a scary thing to do to stand in a room where you know that everyone is going to reject you because you are standing on the authority of Christ and on his word, okay? And all of us fail at it in many ways. And so that's not me casting condemnation everybody. anybody. We all fail at that in any number of ways. 
We all suffer from self-interest. We all suffer from the fear of man. But again, on the day of judgment, you won't be worried about any of those things. You won't be sitting there on the day of judgment going, boy, I'm glad that I made those people on earth happy with my decisions. I'm glad that I made that contingent secondary authority. I'm glad that I caved to that pressure in my life because there will only be the blinding glory of the authority of God that you stand before. And at that moment, all that will make, all the difference will be made in how you responded to him here and now. Amen? So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, ask that God would help us in these things, man. It is a time in the world where we are battered by the waves of all kinds of other authorities, all kinds of claims of what is good and right and fair and decent and equitable and all these things, okay? And yet we turn to Jesus Christ and say, we trust in his authority. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. Father God, we thank you for uh, your word, God. You continue. Uh, If we read your word, God, you challenge us with it each and every time we come to it. God, it pushes against our assumptions. It pushes against the perceived ways that we have boxed you in and, and, and put categories on, on your word and what you have taught. God, it continually over and over again challenges us. Um, it, it calls us to account. God, it presents to us, um, truth and an authoritative truth, a truth that we can either choose to submit to in our lives or a truth that we can, t- uh, decide to reject and try to live, uh, according to our own self-will. God, we ask that you would help us as your people uh, to live in submission to your authority each day of our lives. God, that we would not be afraid of of the world. We would not be afraid of of the influence that we could um, lose by standing on the truth. Um, We would not pragmatically try to gain influence by saying things that are untrue, but that we would live under the authority and submission of Jesus Christ, and that every action of our lives uh, would be focused on that. God, help us to be those people. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
have a great week. Um, good to see you today. Um, hope you have uh, a good week and we'll see you next week. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you. Give you peace. We'll see you next week.